I'm telling my husband to please take care of this child and, and love him. And you've made me the happiest woman in the world. And I wouldn't be where I am today without you. And I love you. And it was just a very emotional thing because I was acutely aware that these were the last words he was going to read. And then I hugged my daughter a million times and your mother's instinct kicks in that you just don't want to show the tears or the fear. And then they wheel me down the hall and I break down crying because I'm convinced it's the last time I'm going to see her. And as I'm going to the OR, I'm telling my doctor, there's something wrong. You need to put me under general anesthesia. And she's like, if I do that, I'm going to put you, not just you to sleep, I'm going to put the baby to sleep. I know you're nervous. Jonathan's not here, but we'll take good care of you. Um, and then I was done, right? I was being wheeled into the room that was going to give life to Jacob and take mine. This is episode number 208 with Stephanie Arnold. What is going on, everyone? And welcome back to another episode of the American Sippets Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Once again, my name is Dave Brown. I'm here with my co-host, Barbara Allen, and we have another awesome story for you here today. Our guest is Stephanie Arnold. Stephanie earned several prestigious awards and an Emmy nomination during her 27-year career in television production, but she left that career to focus on building her family. And when she delivered her second child, a rare complication actually killed her. Stephanie was flatlined for 37 seconds before doctors revived her body. And Stephanie's story of those 37 seconds has been featured on Netflix and other major platforms. In this episode of American Snippets, Stephanie talks about the premonitions she had before she died and the lengths she went to in order to find someone who believed her after that experience. She shares the last desperate attempt she made to find help and how that ultimately saved her life. Stephanie talks about her wild experience in those 37 seconds and how it has forever changed her. Uh, actually, she's joined in this episode by a special guest who also offers a whole uh, different perspective on Stephanie's experience. So without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with Stephanie Arnold. You're listening to the American Snippets Podcast. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. I'm your co-host, Barb Allen. Very, very excited today to be sitting down with our guest, Stephanie Arnold. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, and you know, as I know that you have learned how to place a premium on your time and you truly understand the value of it, I'm going to say like an extra round of thank you because I know that that matters even more. Let's get into uh, to your story. Before we get to everything that happened to you and led you down this one path, you had other things happen in your life and you had other paths that you were taking. So let's talk about your professional career at first. At one time in your career, you had pursued a very competitive area and built up a huge level of success in that. You've been nominated for an Emmy as, an, as a TV producer. How did you get into that field and what was that Emmy for? You know, I started working in television when I was 14 years old where everybody was taking internships at retail shops to get free clothes. I was like, no, I wanna work in news. And so I got an internship at a local news station in West Palm Beach, Florida. 
And uh, during the internship, I was like, wow, I like the running gun of news and I like the excitement and the passion and the pressure of it. Um, and then I spent the next six years through college working at television stations. And it was just, it, it became something that I realized I definitely wanted to do. And then I pivoted at 19. I directed my first music video and totally told the record label I had all of this abilities. And I'm like, I had great people that I connected with. And they're like, if you get that music video, we will help you. So I'm like, oh yeah, I could do this. And I don't, I don't know, I, probably because you're 19 and you think the, you have the world at your feet. I probably had the power to, to not realize that I was about to walk into this fire. Um, and they gave me the opportunity. I directed my first music video uh, with Julio Iglesias. So it was a very big, big, I didn't know what the heck I was doing, but I had great people around me that supported me. Um, and then the career as a music video director opened up another world and I started producing infomercials and commercials and, and then moved into reality TV. I, I spent a few years in New York City. I did, um, I was the executive producer of the the New York Magazine Awards show, the Puerto Rican Day Parade, um, live shows with millions of people walking the streets of New York City in these parades with 25 live cameras, high pressure. Um, I was in Studio 8H, which is where they shot Saturday Night Live. So I was like in the mix, in the center of it, loved it. Um, and then ran a division of Endemol the Puerto Rican Day Parade and the New York Magazine Awards were the ones that I got uh, local Emmy nods. And then one of my music videos was nominated for a Premio Lo Nuestro, which was uh, the equivalent of the Grammys and for uh, the U.S. Hispanic market. And then got a job as the senior VP of Endemol U.S. Latino. And so I took shows like Deal or No Deal, converted them into the formats of Spanish language and did it for Telemundo and EP executive produced those shows and was off to the races with my reality TV career. It sounds like, how does a 14 year old get an internship at a news station? You know, now you couldn't do it. I, my 15 year old is trying to get a job in the middle of a pandemic and you know, it's impossible, but at 14, they were offering, I had my sister's best friend worked in human resources at the local station. And she's like, you know, well, we're able to do internships for, for high school students. So they're like, but you have to take it seriously. I'm like, I will. And um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. It sounds it. What did you, what were you doing? I'm fascinated by this. And I, I think it's important to, to spend a minute on because there's a lot of kids in that age in the teenage bracket who may be interested in something. And even though, as you said, it's definitely harder to get that foot in the door today, it's still possible to get a foot in other doors or, or even, you know, somehow this or somebody does know someone at the station because life is really about relationships and who it knows is. you. Uh, and so if, if there is a parent of a teenager listening now who has a teenager who wants to get into something, would you have any words of wisdom for them. I mean, the big, the biggest thing I did is, you know, even though I had somebody peripherally related to a TV station, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I would go to your inner circle, to your family, to your friends. And if there's something that you really want to do, whether it's you want to code or you want to be an, an artist, or you want to write music, or you want to be a DJ or what have you, 
I would figure out who your family knows as like, you know, within arm's reach of somebody that they know and somebody that they know, and then start making the calls and be aggressive about it in a way of sending a letter, write a handwritten letter, because people don't get those anymore. Not just a quick email or a text. Hey, let's, let's, let's connect. I think by taking the time, and I learned this a lot from, you know, the old school mentality is that when you take the time to write a letter, which is something people don't receive anymore and say, I really love the work that you're doing. I really would would value any time you would offer a young candidate that would be interested in doing this kind of work. It really fascinates me. I don't know whether it is for me, but I won't know unless I'm in it. And I promise to commit hundred percent to it. I think you might start seeing doors open at least a crack for somebody to be like, you know what? I was young once somebody gave me a chance and that was what happened to me and what's happened to most of us. It's like somebody believed in you, somebody gave you a chance and that person could be that person too, the young teen that's listening. Gold. That's gold. All right. That wraps up another episode. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> because that's, that's great stuff right there. Thank you. <laughs> so look, it sounds like, I mean, obviously you had a career that you were heavily invested in personally and professionally. It was very important to you. You were, you were in your space and you were soaring to success and working hard and all in. And yet you decided to change the path of your life in 2008. What prompted you to say, Ooh, this is amazing. Look at this door. I could go through here. What prompted you to, to take that, that turn? I fell in love. That happens. <laughs> I, you know, here's yeah. my husband for one second. Honey, say hi. <laughs> Barb is asking me. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Hi. Good morning. This is awesome. Good morning. Thank you for popping in. <laughs> of course. I'm just trying it out to say hello once in a while. You just tried it out. Look, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to be trotted out. It means it, it means pride. She's proud of you. Yes, that that is very nice. <laughs> you're so you're so positive and optimistic. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the alternative is not very pleasant. So, I appreciate you stopping it to say hello. Do you have, feel free to add anything your thoughts in before we were just about to dive into, you know, some of the more meat of your wife's story? But is there anything? you would like to add about your experiences watching her go through this, being a part of this, um, watching that Netflix documentary back? Uh, yeah, I've, I can give you a few thoughts. First, I want to uh, n- note my appreciation for the American flag hanging over your shoulder. That's always a nice thing to see, and we don't see it enough in this country these days, so um, always wonderful. Uh, with respect to my wife's experience, I would say that uh, all in all, it's been very frustrating because it's such a um, different dimension of life and experience and one that I do not uh, have access to myself. So it, uh, it creates, it's as though she sees the world and I see the world in not just different ways, but in ways that I find it very difficult to comprehend. Uh, so we've had, we've had many disagreements, uh, which are really born out of frustration and a lack of, uh, uh, synchronicity in the way we interpret the world. Uh, so I, I find it to be actually quite difficult. Sometimes my strategy with respect to difficult situations is, uh, first to repress them that takes care of the short run and then to suppress them, which takes care of the long run. And that <laughs> solves it for me. I'm good. I can keep going. <laughs> I love you. That's amazing. You sound like my son. And I'm going to say something right there real, real quick too. What you just said, how you described that is how 
I experienced life in one hand as the as a military spouse and how a lot of military spouses also feel about their spouse coming home from a combat deployment or whatever. And, you know, you experience life, you perceive things on different perspectives. And, and I know that, you know, you're a veteran yourself. I don't know your history in the service. But anyway, that just is what came to my mind because it sounds so similar to what military spouses have gone through trying to help their spouses return from service or transition out and adapt to civilian life. And the veteran sees things as one way, family sees things as another. And there's like this clash in between that you have to work through. So that was a, I don't know, that's just what I pulled from that. But yeah, no, it, yeah. it does create a clash. And, and unfortunately it leads to divorce or unhappy marriages uh, and, yeah. uh, and a lot of difficulties in that respect. I personally was a peacetime, uh, uh, military member. So, uh, I, I feel as though I have not only such a limited amount in common with, uh, with veterans who have seen combat, uh, and have served during wartime that it's as though we had two completely different experiences. And I feel very small compared to them because, uh, my, my objective, my desire when I was a young man was to, uh, fight in combat and be tested in combat. Um, and I think that people who have been in combat and survived it have a certain amount of pride, but they also have uh, sort of a, a much more realistic view. And it's not glamorous. It's not fun. It's they've seen death around them. They've lost friends. Um, sometimes they wish it had been them and not uh, their buddy. And it, it creates it's just a horrible thing. Horrible. Yeah. Well, you also raised your right hand and took that oath and served and a lot of people didn't. So don't sell yourself short there. OK. Well, you're very kind to say it. Nice to meet you. <laughs> yes, you too. Thank you for doing this. This was a this was a fun surprise. <laughs> yes, indeed. It significantly <laughs> exceeded my expectations because usually the interviews don't go like this at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll, I'm going to take that as a compliment. Good. <laughs> well, that was and, a nice surprise. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. I, I love it. It means a lot when somebody we're interviewing you know, opens that up to the people most important to them. So thank you for that. Uh, and a different, a whole different track. I didn't expect. Mm -hmm. Great way to start off Monday. Ooh, keep me on my toes here, Stephanie. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that was also perfect timing yes, because we was. were literally just speaking about why yes. you left and here he comes. That was yes, perfect. It was perfect. Um, so yeah, I <laughs> fell in love. I met him in LA when I was working and he lives in Chicago and we met and it was it was instant. It was, I had seen, it was like, you know. And so I was like, oh, there you are. And six months later we were married and he relocated me to Chicago. And that's pretty much where my career stopped because going to Chicago, the only game in town was Oprah. And she had just announced that she was canceling or, you know, closing down the studios. And so I was like, okay, I guess, you know, we're going to focus on having kids. And because I had tried going back and forth to the networks and pitching shows, but it was really impossible to do that long distance. And so uh, we got pregnant with our first after three rounds of IVF. And I didn't have any um, complications other than the fact that she was too big. And so I had to have a C-section at 41 weeks. And then the second one was after seven rounds of IVF. And so with Jacob, I was pregnant with him. Um, the first part of it, the first five months was 
pretty easy. It wasn't, it wasn't too difficult. Um, and then things got a little hairy. Yes. So you, <laughs> hairy, I guess that's one way to put it, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> what was that? Do you remember, you must remember the very first, you're just going along, going about your business, you're, you know, air quote, normal, mm-hmm. pregnant mom, wife, mm-hmm. not expecting anything unusual to happen. And then out of the blue, well, so, so what happened was, is, um, you know, I was very happy with this pregnancy because I didn't have any Charlie horses. I didn't have any acid reflux. I was like, oh, I get pregnant with boys all the time. This is fantastic. Um, and at the 20 week ultrasound, which is the big ultrasound, um, they diagnosed me with the placenta previa, which is basically the placenta growing on top of the cervix. And they're like, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. It's just it, eventually as the uterus grows, the placenta will move out of the way. But something sat with me in that ultrasound. And I had said to my husband, I said, I don't really know what this is, but um, I've got a bad feeling about it. I said, I'm already a rare blood type and O negative, and I don't need to be special in any other category. But something hit me. It was, it was not comfortable. So of course I go home and I start Googling everything I can about what a placenta previa is. Uh, placenta previa can turn into an accreta, which is what Kim Kardashian had, which is, you know, the placenta merges itself with the uterus. If that happens, there could be some bleeding and then I keep reading. I'm like, if that happens, you might need a hysterectomy. If that happens, you could hemorrhage. And if that happens, you and the baby could die. And I sat back and I looked at my husband and I said, this is going to happen to us. The only difference is the baby's going to be fine. And of course, you know, my husband being former military, but he was, he's also a PhD in economics from the university of Chicago. So he's a statistician, he's data driven. He, he is very calm. Like, you know, he reads the information and he's like, sweetheart, what you're afraid of happening is the ultimate worst case scenario. It's less than a half of a half of a half, of a, half a half a percent chance of happening. You need to get your mind off of it. But I, but I knew, I knew this was going to happen. So then I just started telling everybody, I went into producer mode. When you're, when you're a TV producer, you run the show. So you're, you're coordinating everything from makeup to casting, to talent, to, you know, audio, to cameras, to, to set design, to everything. You are overseeing, you have your hand in everything. And I felt like I was going right back into production, except I was working on saving my life. So I was like, okay, who do I talk to? What do I do? I need to research. So I spoke to doctors. I spoke to nurses. I'm like, my placenta previa is going to turn into a creta. I'm going to hemorrhage. You're going to need extra blood. Um, I'm going to be cut from sternum to pelvis. Who's going to do the surgery? Who, what happens if I mean, like I sounded like crazy person and, you know, in all of my doctor's defenses, the tests were negative. Everything was negative. So they were thinking I am a histrionic neurotic woman, but I'm like, I don't think, you know, the career that I had, I'm not a histrionic neurotic person. I can handle high stress. This is something different. Um, And at some point we had a friend of a friend who was a gynecological oncologist. He was a fellow. And he said, I said to, Jonathan was talking to him casually on the phone. He said, tell him my visions. He's accepting. I'm like, I'll waste this man's time. And I'm like, I'm like, give me the phone. So I'm like, what happens in the event that I need a hysterectomy when I deliver a baby, he's like, Stephanie, why would you say that? And I'm like, because I know that this is going to happen. And he's like, he's like, it's not going to happen. I said, well, humor me what happens. And he's like, well, 
he's like, your OB would transfer you to maternal fetal medicine, but maternal fetal medicine doesn't have as much uh, experience as a gynecological oncologist because they deal with high risk reproductive organ surgeries day in and day out. They have much more experience. So I was like, okay, so I need to get an appointment with the head of Gynonc at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, which is a teaching hospital. And I don't have a diagnosis of any reproductive organ cancer, but I got to figure a way to get into to meeting him. And I told my OB, I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. She's like, okay. She knew my vision. So she wasn't going to stop me from doing anything. She's like, okay, that's, I don't think she logically thought I was going to do it. Um, so finally got the appointment and Jonathan went with me to every single appointment and we're sitting in the waiting room and he's looking at these women that are suffering from cancer and their IVs and they have no hair. And he's like, I am embarrassed to be here. And I said, I don't know what to tell you, but maybe this doctor has heard something and maybe he's had a patient who's had this kind of foreboding and they'll give me some direction because right now I've got nothing. So we go into the consultation room, the doctor sitting there and the resident is writing the notes. And he's like, um, Mrs. Arnold, how can we help you? I said, well, Jonathan's like, you sounded very mafia. It was like, I see you, you see me, you're now my doctor. And then I said, I said, okay, so my placenta preview is going to turn into an accreta. I need you to perform the hysterectomy at the time of my mandatory C-section. And so, yeah, that's why I'm here. And he sits back and he's like, Mrs. Arnold, have you been on the internet? And I'm like, why? Yes, I have, but this is going to happen. And he's like, okay, well, why don't we get um, an MRI? If the MRI is positive for an accreta, then I will um, schedule myself during a mandatory C-section. And I felt better because I had something to do that was a little bit more invasive, but not going to hurt the baby, but at least maybe something would explain more to me. The MRI is negative. And so Jonathan says, you should feel better. And I said, I feel worse because now I'm running out of people to tell this crazy foreboding story to. So I took to Facebook. I said, if anybody has my blood type, I'm going to need it. Not because I knew anybody yeah. was going to be able to deliver their blood, but it was like, maybe somebody would have heard something and say, okay, this happened to a cousin of mine, right? Um, I wrote goodbye letters. I sent out goodbye letters. I told people exactly what was going to happen in a couple months time. And, um, and then at some point my doctor was like, are you still having the visions? And I said, yeah. And she's like, why don't you have a consultation with anesthesia? And I didn't have it with my first, but I'm like, great. Another person to talk to. And this uh, fellow doctor, she answered the phone. She, her name is Dr. Grace Lim. And she said, I mean, she explained what would happen when they, they triage me, put the epidural in where I would deliver, where I would recover. And I tried one more time. I said, and what happens if this, 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 and this happens? And she said, um, she didn't really know what to say at that moment. And she's like, you know, Mrs. Arnold, you're in a teaching hospital. We're prepared for worst case scenarios. We'll take very good care of you. And she said the last thing that she remembers me saying was it is what it is because this was the last, last person I was going to tell the story to. Um, yeah. And then I waited for D-Day. Wow. That is wild to go through. And on the one hand, like you said, you it's hard to hold it against people who took the time even to listen to you. But, you know, how many patients have they seen who've 
had all of this and gone through this. Surprisingly, not a lot. You know, when I talk to my doctors, I'm like, how many patients have this kind of foreboding? They're not, not a lot. And then they said, well, how many times have they said something that something's gone wrong? And it's like, it's very rare. And then they have the difference of like people, patients who are neurotic or or anxious or fearful. I mean, I get that. But what my doctors were missing was I've had a baby before, I've had a C-section before, and I function really well under high stress. So the biggest thing my doctors were missing was the fact that this was not typical behavior of Stephanie Arnold. This I was, and so that was the big red flag for me in my post story was like how I teach and how I talk at the universities and and the medical institutions. I'm like, they were missing something about their patient that was not normal behavior. And you have to pay attention to that. You know, my sister, when she had her son, had placenta previa that was not diagnosed until after she gave birth and she was bleeding. The doctor left, didn't believe her when she said she was hurting and the nurses had to call the doctor back. And by that time, my sister was, you know, being headed to the OR and things were very serious. Uh, And so I get that. And I don't know, I know a zillion people and I myself have been misdiagnosed or just laughed out of ERs or doctor's appointment when I knew something was wrong and they're like, well, the test doesn't show. And then lo and behold, I'm back and I'm being rushed into emergency surgery because I was laughed out two weeks ago, you know? So I have all those experiences I can connect to too, but nothing really on that level where it was months and months of me saying, this is going to happen and feeling so alone in that. And I mean, how, how did you what were the things that you were doing to kind of help yourself take some deep breaths or was it just helping you to focus more? Okay. I can't do anything about X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to just get organized and make sure I line up everything that I can line up. Is that how you were? Yeah. I mean, the, the way that I talk about like with Jacob, I, I, you know, normally I'm very type A and organized and I refuse to get his room ready or buy clothes because I felt that if I, maybe God would spare me and that I would have a reason to come back because I wasn't done with my job being a mom, um, logical or illogical. It was, it was the way I was thinking. I didn't, you know, when my sister came to help my husband, she's like, where are Jacob's clothes? Where, where's his baby stuff? And he's like, what are you talking about? And she's like, this is not my sister, where stuff. And I was like, I, on purpose, I didn't, I didn't prepare. Um, you know, it was hard. I have, uh, you know, Adina was two years old at the time and I was trying to absorb every moment with her, but at the same time, fearful that I, I was a ticking time bomb waiting for the day, you know, D day for me was delivery day, but was also the day I was going to die. So I was breathing in those moments, like acutely aware that my countdown was started and it, you know, everybody else was seeing an open road and I was seeing an 18 wheeler heading straight for me. So it wasn't, it wasn't logical for anybody else. And all they could see is that me in those moments, just living in fear for the three months. So when people talk about me, about the moment of impact, about death and how fearful it is, like the actual point of impact is not scary at all. The, you know, it's quite peaceful in that moment. It, it, it was for me, the most terrifying was the three months prior because, you know, you're anticipating it the entire time. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And so, you know, I've, everybody always connects somebody's story to their own and you're just hitting so many things in my, my brain and my heart right now. I could go on forever about all this, but 
D-Day comes, you know, your delivery day, and your husband is out of town, mm-hmm. and you're home there, which is always how it happens, by the always. way, right? Always, <laughs> like, but you know what? You know, to this day, he feels yeah. guilty about not being there in that moment. And I said, it's one thing to hear your wife flatline. It's another thing to see it. And, you know, I you wouldn't be able to get those images out of your head had you seen it. It's already difficult for him. And when he, he says he suppresses and represses, I mean, he's typical, he's typical military, typical guy, typical um, where... <laughs> I don't need to wear my heart on my sleeve. My, my family can see it, but nobody else needs to see it. So it really, the story really affects him. There's a chapter that he had to write in the book that he didn't want to, that he fought me for months and I had to deliver it to the publisher. And I'm like, I don't understand why you can't write this. And then finally, when he wrote, wrote it, it was so painful to read. And I was like, I get it. You know, it's it's opening a wound that he just doesn't want to go back to. And meanwhile, then the story takes off and he has to talk about it. And he's like, I just want to go back to like repressing everything. <laughs> um, so so D-Day comes. So I, I was giving my daughter uh, breakfast in the morning and I start bleeding on the kitchen floor. And, and my nanny was there and she was like, okay, well, we're going to the hospital. And she gets into the driver's seat and I'm like, get out of the driver's seat. And she's yes. like, she's like, she's like, you're bleeding. I said, I know, but I've had plenty of premonitions. Dying in a car accident was not one of them. So get out, but cause I'll kill you if you I happen know. to take getting to the hospital. So, um, so we get to the hospital, we get triaged. Um, you know, I tell Jonathan, he was in New York and you're looking good, honey. You're looking good. I, if I showed you the camera right now, I'd be like, <laughs> he would be laughing. He's out, he's out posing like those are my guts. Um, <laughs> you look good. Would you like to get back on it? Oh, what? What? Sorry. Um, I love it. I love these. Things. <laughs> this is great. So he, uh, so I call him, I tell him that we're going to have the baby today and he gets on a plane heading back. And so we're Skype chatting and my daughter's in the room and the doctor comes in and says, you know, the ORs are quiet. So let's go ahead and take Jacob and telling my daughter, we'll be back with your brother and you'll see mommy soon. And I'm telling my husband to please take care of this child and and love him. And you've made me the happiest woman in the world. And I wouldn't be where I am today without you. And I love you. And it was just a very emotional thing because I was acutely aware that these were the last words he was going to read. And then I hugged my daughter a million times and your mother's instinct kicks in that you just don't want to show the tears or the fear. And then they wheel me down the hall and I break down crying because I'm convinced it's the last time I'm going to see her. And as I'm going to the OR, I'm telling my doctor, there's something wrong. You need to put me under general anesthesia. And she's like, if I do that, I'm going to put you, not just you to sleep. I'm going to put the baby to sleep. I know you're nervous. Jonathan's not here, but we'll take good care of you. Um, And then I was done, right? I was being wheeled into the room that was going to give life to Jacob and take mine. And I, I couldn't escape. Like there, you know, there's one thing if you're having an elective surgery and you're like, I have a bad feeling of foreboding, you just cancel it. But there was no canceling this procedure. And so, you know, as you know, the C-section, they, they, they have your arms in a T, they put a curtain in front of your face, they prepare you. And 
I don't remember. They told me it was about 15 minutes before they delivered Jacob, but I don't remember any of that. I remember a moment where they put soap on the belly and they look up at the clock and they wait for three minutes for it to dry before they start with the scalpel. And, um, and I remember it being very tense and I remember it, you know, me just my heart in my throat because it, it was almost like the EKG unit. Like I'm hearing the beeps until the moment of flatline. And I, I feel like in those moments, I probably scared myself out of my body. I know that doesn't sound logical, but it was just like either you compartmentalize yourself or whatever, because apparently the doctors were talking to me and the nurses were talking to me, but I was catatonic and I didn't, I didn't respond to anything. They delivered Jacob healthy and happy. And then seconds later, I was clinically dead for, for a moment. For a moment, you know, 37 seconds on the surface doesn't sound like a lot, but I imagine, you know, when you're dead or going through something, everything is relative, right? So 37 seconds that first ended your life and then changed it and ended your life in a very literal sense. So talk about those 37 seconds. Yeah. So I ended up having an amniotic fluid embolism, which is very rare. It is um, when it's a one in 40,000 risk where amniotic cells get into the mother's bloodstream. And if you happen to be allergic to it, your body goes into anaphylactic shock. And in most cases you don't make it, you know, Northwestern delivers 12,000 babies a year. Most doctors will never see an AFE an amniotic fluid embolism in their entire history. Um, this hospital has had 10 in their history. This uh, six did not make it in the other three are in permanent vegetative states. Whoa. Uh, it's yeah. the statistics are pretty, pretty horrific. And, and so, um, the first phase is cardiac arrest and you flatline. So I flatlined for 37 seconds, but there was something in the OR that I did not predict. And there was a crash cart and there was extra blood and measures in the, the OR. And I later was told that that anesthesiologist consult that I had, she didn't feel comfortable that I'd had a baby before, had articulated exactly what was going to happen to me and had sought out specialists to save my life. And with that one last ditch effort, she flagged my file and incorporated those extra measures in the OR. And that is 100% what saved my life. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah. So your, you know, your normal body has about 20 units of blood. I was given 60 units of blood and blood product to save my life. And, and with, with blood, it has O negative. I can only receive O negative. And so if you're not in a hospital where there's a blood bank, where you can have enough blood, you're not going to make it. And the, you know, they were able to stabilize me. Um, And then that's when Jonathan arrived at the hospital and you know, once they moved me to the surgical ICU, he, this is when, this is when the air force pilot and the anesthesiologist think very similarly, which is he was not emotional about it. They gave him the information. Then he went directly into what's mortality, morbidity. What is the outcome? What do we need to do for the next hour? What are we looking for? And, and she appreciated that very much because it's, it doesn't serve the doctor well to not just give the news, but then to also have all of the emotions of the family. So he, he just went into everything like, okay, if she needs a hysterectomy, this is the doctor we met with two months before. And the the anesthesiologist thought that was very strange. She's like, well, she wouldn't sustain another surgery right now. We stabilized her, but we think we got the bleed. So I don't think it'll be necessary. And then he sees me in the ICU and I, 
and there are pictures on the web and I obviously don't look like what I look like today. And he said, um, he was just listening to the, the beepings of the machines. They put me in a medically induced coma and, um, seven hours later, the bells and whistles went off again because I was still hemorrhaging and they brought in the doctor, the gynoc I had met with two months before to perform the hysterectomy. They did the hysterectomy found that an accreta had started to form when they did the pathology on the uterus and where it was, the MRI didn't pick it up. And so, yeah, it was, uh, everything Jonathan likes to say, yeah, all your visions came true, except mine did too. I thought you were always going to be fine. And you were. <laughs> I, was like, fine. Yeah. I, mean, I was like, fine, I'll give it to you. Right? Yes. I mean, technically he's right. Right. So, yeah. So I have to give it to him. I yeah. mean, on the, so the Netflix, the Netflix show came out in January. And yeah. when, um, when that came out, it was like, we had shot it like almost two years ago. And I don't remember the moment where he had said on the show that like, I believe her, like the hardest thing for me was, you know, get, there were, there were two paths while I was running on trying to save my life. One was to literally save my life. But the other was that if I was going to stay dead, I needed him to understand that I was never going to leave. Like I was always going to be around him you know, so that way when he was sleeping with somebody else in our bed, I would actually, he would actually know that I was there. Um, but, <laughs> but aside from that, I was like, I was like, I don't think you understand, like I'm not going anywhere. And, and so it was very difficult to race against the clock to explain to him that this other vibration exists, this other dimension exists. And he, and he has a very hard time understanding it. So by the time we get to the Netflix series on surviving death, he's like, I believe her. I broke down crying and he's like, you threw me under the bus. Finally, I say out loud that I believe you. And, and then you say, I wish you would have believed me then. And I'm like, it was just kind of a, a release of hearing him out loud say it. Cause he hadn't said it out loud. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. And you know, it's one thing to go through something so intensely personal and intense in general, but to have to do it on a public platform elevates it to another level. And it can be hard for people who are in that situation to, to you know, then you walk into a crowd or into a room and you have people don't know what to say to you or how to respond to you. Or, I mean, did, did that change any of your relationships or was there any kind of ripple effect after that show came out or after that episode came out where people saw that happen? Um, in, in what sense, like friends and family or, yeah, I mean, was yeah. there, or even, or, or even, you know, when you meet someone and now the story is more public is a person like, Oh, it's like they don't know. You yeah, can I they mean, see you as just Stephanie or did they see you as oh no. Stephanie, the one who has all yeah. of this? Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, what's interesting is even our neighbors, I mean, Adina had a lemonade stand and she, you know, just has no issue. This was like last year. This is before the thing came out. And then we have neighbors now that are like, our neighbors were on the Netflix show, you know? And so now the, the attention to certain things are a little, a little different. And these, these aren't neighbors that we're close to, but, but they're, they're seeing things a little differently. And then, you know, my, my relationships with people have changed. It's not, um, you know, if people, I have the ability to, to, intuitively see through a person. So if a, 
And it's not that I need to out anybody, but if somebody is not being honest with who they are, I have a hard time being around them. So sometimes, you know, especially families, school events, I can't be in crowds of like a thousand people and hundred hundreds of people because I feel too much as an empath. And I'm sure you understand hundred percent what that feels like, but you know, some people don't want to be seen. Some people don't are living an Instagram life or living a facade where they just don't want to be seen that deeply. And if they don't, then they avoid me. So that's been the, it's been an obvious shift. Yeah. Yeah. Which can be hard to hard to go through unless you get to the point where you're just like, well, this is the way it is, you know, and you just, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I can't go back. So right. it is, it yeah, is what this it is. is. I just, you've been stretched this far, you know, your world, your mind, your heart, your experience you're now stretched this far. So somebody that hasn't had that happen to them, yeah, they're stretched this far and you just, you know, you can't unstretch. This is just how you are and where you are now. And that can be hard too. Is that why, you know, there are times, you know, I'll be in a crowd and I don't even know why, but I just feel like nauseated or tense or stressed. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I just need to get out mm-hmm. of this crowd and I physically mm-hmm. need to step separate. And people think I'm crazy. I just stepped on a dog. Um, no. so <laughs> didn't know he was there. Uh, and people think, you know, I'm crazy or they don't get, oh, Barb, you know, she's so annoying. But, mm-hmm. um, and I hear a lot of different people have that experience too, but I still don't really understand that. Myself, but that's hmm. you don't know how the mechanics work. I I still don't know how it works, but it just means that there's some energy around you that is not that you are, um, that repels you. And that is like if something is any kind of similar energy to that of what you felt in years past, it just drudges up some stuff that you just like. This just has that icky feeling that it felt like from 15 years before. And all of a sudden you're just feeling suffocated by it and you need to breathe. So no, that's very, very real. Um, Kids feel it. We just don't take them as seriously as we should when they just want to pull away from people or get out of a situation. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I get that. I get that a lot. And I love how you just put that. So now you've, you've moved past and you have this whole different perspective on life. Not one that you necessarily asked for, but one that you got and Mm -hmm. your choice is resist it, push against it, try to climb back into that old version of you, which we all know isn't going to happen or go with it. But was there a moment that you can point to where you made that conscious decision or acknowledgement or realization, whatever you want to call it, that you were like, okay, well, I can't go back. And this is just the way it is now. I I think that when I saw something happen to my child 15 minutes before it happened, and I chose to be quiet about it, and I told my friend, so we so that the story is we were at a fairgrounds and, you know, there's thousands of people at fairgrounds and Jonathan was there with our kids and I have a stepdaughter and she was eight at the time. Adina was, no, three, so she, maybe she was nine. Adina was five or four and Jacob was two. And I remember being at the fairgrounds. And meanwhile, after two years postpartum, you know, I'd been going through this process. I had written the book 
Um, I had been going to hypnotherapy to help remember certain moments uh, in the flat line and the subsequent coma that I was in and, and all the traumas to try and release that. And then, you know, at the fairgrounds, we're with this other family and I'm walking in, they're at the picnic table and we're walking away and I get a vision and my premonitions are getting stronger and stronger. So I have a vision and my friend looks at me because she knows when I stop for a second, she's like, what was that? And I was like, well, I had a vision that Jonathan was playing this fishing game with Valentina, my oldest. I said, Adina was crawling in the grass with your daughter, like playing animals and nobody be watching Jacob and he'd be gone. Now you're talking thousands of people at a fairground, which isn't mm-hmm. the safest place. But then we turn around and they're at the picnic table. So he says, she says, we'll go tell him. I said, see, the thing is, is if I go tell him, we're just trying to get post-trauma, right? We're trying to get out of it. And I don't want to remind him of all of these things. I said, then he's going to tell me dad's parent different than mom. So go get the pizza, right? So I go get the pizza. takes about 15 minutes, 20 minutes, come back. And I'm a hundred feet away from the table and they're there. And I don't see Jacob. And then I'm 50 feet away. And I don't see Jacob. And I scream, where's Jacob? And he's like, oh my God. And we drop everything and go in different directions. Um, A police officer said, did you lose your son? And I'm like, please tell me you have him. He's like, we do. He's over here. So I get Jacob. Um, Jonathan says, I don't know what happened. I said, I I said, he's safe. I said, but I need to talk to you about something. So I gave Jacob to our friend. And I said, "Um, I just need to know if you were playing a fishing game with Valentina while Adina was crawling around on the grass by your feet. And he looks at me and he says, how do you know that? And so I walked away and I threw up. Yeah. And, and then I came back and I said, I don't know how much time I have. I don't know if I have five minutes, I have 20 seconds. I don't know anything. He's like, well, and this was where it changed. She's like, why don't we just take your visions as gospel? you know, and then you speak them and you say, because I always say, if you sense it, say it, you, you will never regret speaking up and being wrong, but you will regret not speaking up and being dead. Right. Right. It's not worth me losing my child because I'm afraid to speak up. So he's like, so just, just tell us, but don't take advantage of it. And I said, (laughs) I said, let me tell you, there's a diamond bracelet at the jewelers. And if I don't get that, something really bad is going to happen. So, Look, there have to be some other perks besides yeah, the no kidding. Besides the meaningful ones, like so serious. Trust, trust, oh, yeah. <laughs> seriously. <laughs> okay, so moving forward, you've taken all of this and you've put it into not just a whole new awareness for yourself and your family, but you've reached out to professional organizations. So this is one I definitely want to hit on before we have to wrap this up is that I saw that you were doing some outreach or speaking to address the gap between in medical care between doctors and patients Mm -hmm. with that happen. Can you talk about that a little? Because even everything you've said so far, and I know other people, the importance of advocating for yourself when nobody believes you, nobody wants to hear you and you feel so alone. Mm -hmm. That applies to so many areas of life. So many, many, but uh, especially in medical care in this situation. So can you talk about that and pull a lesson a nugget yeah. out from that to help others? Yeah. I mean, the reality is, is that doctors are not infallible. Um, as we all know, do- doctors have lost a lot of patients, um, patients uh, as opposed to patients, right. lost patients too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, 
they're using a lot of AI and they're using data to determine certain things. And the outliers, like in my case, are far and few between. So they're like, oh, if I lose that one or that one, it's just like, you know, a half a percent as opposed to the rest of the 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 world. My my point with the the doctors and the patients and one of the issues that I'm having with the gap of care is that when one goes through a near-death experience, um, it is very hard for a patient to discuss it with the medical community because they either, one, they don't believe it, two, they've never experienced it um, themselves and they think that they chalk it up to post-trauma. and, or three, they might have experienced something like that, but they're not comfortable with it because it is, even though there's a ton of data and evidence out there that this exists, it doesn't qualify as their kind of data. So what I tell people um, is that you talk about it. The first thing I do with the institutions, with the, the doctors, the clinicians I speak to, is I say, you know, thinking outside of the box is what saved my life. I said, AI, um, there was an article at MIT News in July 2018 that talked about how AI is helping doctors diagnose, but there's one thing they can't repeat, and that is a doctor's intuition. Uh, Especially when a doctor sees a patient in the ICU, they know what tests and they know what medicines to, to, to offer because they're actually visualizing the patient. The second thing is, is that do not tell the patient that, oh, you gave us a scare. God has a reason he saved you. Um, It's a miracle you're here. Because what that does for the patient is that that makes you feel how close a call it was. And that does not help your recovery. And from a patient's perspective, speak up. Because it doesn't matter. I know you're going to feel judged. I know you're going to feel like you're crazy. But I'm telling you, there are resources out there. There are books out there. There are people out there that want to help you through this. Because once you've been asystolic or you've gone, which just means there's no electricity running through your body and you get unplugged and you get plugged back in, you are on high voltage. So the energy that you feel off of people, even as an empath that you're feeling, you know, when you've had trauma and you get plugged back in, you start sensing all of these things, you think you are crazy. But the more we speak up and the more that we talk about it, the more we are educating ourselves that you are not alone and we are not alone. And I think that, that, when people don't want to hear it and people shut it down and say, okay, I think you're crazy, they're leading with fear. So then that's not the right person that you're going to talk to, but you're going to find somebody who is the right person to talk to. And traditional therapy is not going to help in this case. Um, Usually like a Jungian therapist who deals with dreams and visions and how they sense things from a more um, spiritual place or some sort of regression therapy that's going to use hypnotherapy or EMDR and things to take you back to those traumas so that you can understand the connected tissue in between that. All of those things will help um, at least give you a little bit more solid ground than when you were on before. Awesome. And and two other ways that you're taking this message and your lessons out there. One, you just released your book. Talk about that. So my book is called 37 Seconds. Um, it was the catalyst for everything. And um, the audiobook came out with the Netflix series. Uh, the Netflix series is called Surviving Death. And we're on episode one of that. The uh, The book you can get anywhere, libraries. It became a library journal bestseller. It was a national bestseller and it's in 12 languages currently. We just signed, I wrote the screenplay and just sold it. So it will be a movie probably within the next couple of years. And we're currently looking at directors and actors. And um, 
and the, the other part that I'm doing is, you know, I have a podcast that's going to launch, um, in the next month or two called knowing, and I would love to hear stories. I, I, my pilot episode is with a Vietnam veteran who had visions about like choppers going down and nobody took him seriously and he would see these things before they happened. And then ultimately the CIA was trailing him because they knew that, um, military, well, first of all, the military has studied intuition and studied the spidey sense and, you know, looking to see if they can weaponize it, of course, but, but there were congressional budgets to study remote viewing and ESP and everything within the military branches. And so I find this fascinating that it hasn't really been opened up as much, but there are some soldiers out there who I've spoken to, um, who have had these experiences and it ultimately saved their lives. So the the podcast is called knowing, and you don't know how, you know, you just do. And so if any of your audience has stories to please connect to me at, um, stephaniearnold.net, you can get a free download of the prologue of the book at stephaniearnold.net slash audiobook. You can also get it for free at any library or Hoopla Digital, there those platforms if you have a library card. And um, and then, yeah, I would love to hear if anybody has any stories, including you, Barb. Yeah, thank you. You know, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, but I think, I think ultimately, yeah. I, you know, when I was Googling who had foreboding during pregnancy, it didn't exist. And now right. I get emails from people who have seen our story, have read it, that are like, I've had similar experiences. And so they have something to point to that, that maybe they could talk to an anesthesiologist if they're feeling it. And by the way, if you're ever feeling any kind of foreboding, you talk to the anesthesiologist because their job is to keep you alive in the operating room. And so, you know, yeah, I, I think the more that we tell the stories, the more that more people will feel less alone. I love that. Thank you. And, you know, not everybody does that or finds the way to do that. So people like you who are coming out and using that experience to, to reach others are, you're so important. And especially in this area where it's still, it's not mainstream, you know, it, there, the market is not saturated with people telling this story over and over to the point where somebody like you, when you come out and say it, I don't know. I think you have more like the moment is here for you to step in. All the stars have aligned for you to be the one, I think, to step into this arena and and call this out. And so I appreciate you doing this. And Thank I'm you. so glad that I got to connect with you. And I will absolutely be following up with you and sharing out your podcast and all that. So Thank you so much. And if people want to get in touch, they can check out the website or they can find me on Instagram or at Steph Arnold 37 and, you know, at on Facebook as well. So, and you're on clubhouse too. I am. I actually like the format very much. So I started my own club on clubhouse called the sixth sense. Um, and I'm starting to do weekly clubs at, at, in the evenings on Tuesday evenings, just bringing people in that have had certain experiences. So we could just continue to share the more that we should be aware. Absolutely. Uh, and we'll put that information in the links in the write-up that we do to accompany your interview. So anybody listening, if you didn't catch what Stephanie just said, don't panic, hop online, hop to the website, to the article and, uh, and the write-up that we have. And we're going to include all those links right there. Stephanie, again, thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me. All right, everyone, there you have it. That wraps up yet another episode of the American Sippets podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today and spending 
a little bit of your time here with us on the show. I'd like to personally thank Stephanie Arnold for being here as well and sharing her absolutely incredible story. Make sure you go to americansnippets.com forward slash newsletter to check out the show notes, uh, re-listen to the podcast interview. It's the feature podcast of the week of the week. Watch the video interview. And we also include some links there that you can use to follow and learn more about Stephanie on social. Uh, if you got any value out of this episode or any episode that we've done in the past, all that we ask each and every Wednesday is that you leave us a five-star review uh, on iTunes or your favorite podcast app iTunes reviews are really helpful in helping us grow our audience, get these stories out there in front of more people and help us climb further up the podcast ranking. So we would appreciate your support and your help if you could leave us a five-star written review on iTunes. Don't forget to follow us on social, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at American Snippets. Tell someone what we're doing here. Share this podcast with a friend. Share one of your favorite episodes on social media. And don't forget, we have our great American syndicate. This is our growing community, a coalition of patriotic, freedom-loving Americans who believe in the American dream and the core values this country is founded upon. We're all about liberty, freedom, personal responsibility. And we want to invite you to come join and become a member of the Great American Syndicate. Just go to greatamericansyndicate.com to learn more. Thanks again for being here today. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you really are.